Hello, welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast, hosted by me, Jack Perks. Professionally, I'm a wildlife cameraman, but I dabble in podcasting, and each Tuesday we release an episode as I have a chat with scientists, artists, filmmakers, and passionate people all about nature in a light-hearted and certainly not serious way. Hello and welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast. I'm your host, Jack Perks. If I sound a bit croaky, it's because I have flu. And I'm not talking about a sniffle for a couple of days. I've been ill for two weeks. I've never had flu before. It's fucking horrible. I would not recommend it to anyone. It's probably worse than when I had COVID, I would say. So I apologise if I sound croaky. Today, our guest is Alex Mustard. He is a top-tier underwater photographer Arguably one of the best in the world, although he would probably be too bashful to say that himself. So we are talking all about underwater photography. We cover things like, is there anything about the job that he doesn't like? Who's inspired him throughout his career? How he started his career? And if you wanted to try and get into underwater photography as a job, what would he recommend? So it's a great chat. Before we do that, though, let's go to buymeacoffee.com. So the podcast is completely independent and we don't have any money through sponsors or anything like that. The only way that we make money is through donations from the good people like yourselves who are listening. And we take this from buymeacoffee.com. There's a link in the description to do that. If you want to donate, whatever you can afford, it is greatly appreciated and it helps us tick over going along. We're trying to raise £1,000 at the minute so that they can pay me to travel around the UK and meet people in person. I was going to meet Alex in person, he lives in Peterborough, so not a million miles away from me, but in the end we found Zoom was more convenient. Now if you donate, you can leave a comment, so I'm going to read out some of the comments that people have left. We've got Paul C, who bought me a coffee, and he put Loving the Films Jack. I also run this Buy Me A Coffee for my YouTube channel, so if you want to check out my YouTube channel, that's Jack Perks Wildlife Media, you can see lots of pretty pictures of fish and whatnot. Martin Andrews bought three coffees, thank you very much Martin. And he put love the show. So thanks so much. And then Cappy Takapeta. I think I've said that right. They brought three coffees and they put thanks for the hard work on the podcast. Some great topics. Crayfish and cats to name a few. Ooh, well, cats, that's coming up again soon. If you're a regular listener, you'll know about my ongoing struggle with cats. And we are doing a sequel to the cat podcast I did before. So that'll be out the week after next. So I have recorded it. It's on its way, and I've been talking about this cat podcast for ages. It is coming. Anyway, let's get on to today's podcast, and let's have a good old chat with Alex Mustard. Well, welcome to the podcast, Alex. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. How are you doing? Yeah, pretty good. Up to my neck at the moment. I help run a photo- big underwater photography competition called Underwater Photographer of the Year, and we announce the results next week, which means we're... We we judged it a month ago, but we're right in the middle of getting all the admin together. It's amazing how much needs to be put in place. So chasing entrance to finalise captions and then check and correct everything. So, yeah, busy with that. Oh, God, as a as a dyslexic person, that sounds like an absolute nightmare to me. <laughs> Just looking well, at all yeah. that. I think also everyone suffers blindness that when they see these things for the hundredth time. You just can't spot the obvious mistakes anymore. I bet. Well, I was going to start with something else, but seeing as you've mentioned that, I might as well ask you this. So 
you, you mentioned you're one of the judges on this competition. I mean, yeah. every photographer entering these will want to know, like, what what are you looking for? Because you say you get like blindish because you're bombarded with all these pictures. What is it you're looking for to kind of elevate certain images for comps like this? Well, that, that blindness was very much referring to the admin side. Yeah, no. Thanks <laughs> again and again. I mean, competition judge-wise, for me, you know, I sort of came up with the with with this contest. So I can't complain about the judging because I sort of, you know, decided it. For me, the absolute critical thing is the process. And honestly, I, I really believe with UPY, we have the process so spot on that actually um, I think you could swap the judges around and you get very, very similar results. And I think that comes about because what we do is, unlike a lot of competitions, certainly a lot of the underwater competitions, our three judges all meet together physically. We all look at one screen and we all look at every single entrant and then through a number of rounds, cull those entrants down. Um, and we simply ask the question, you know, could that be a winner? And it's the time where you very much are judging with the responsibility of the competition first and foremost in your mind. So you're not bringing your own own biases towards images. In fact, someone was asking me the other day, I posted something online saying, I don't like this particular type of image. I think it was like, I don't like uh, underwater photos where people have used artificial backgrounds. Right. And people were saying, oh, I better not enter that in the competition. And I was actually saying, well, actually, within the competition, we've awarded those pictures many times because yeah. it's about recognizing excellence within all the branches of underwater photography, not about what I like or dislike. So I find it quite easy to judge for the sake of the competition rather than for the sake of myself. You've got to take a step back, I suppose, like you're saying. And and also, if you if there's three of you in the room, I guess that's quite handy to bounce off each other. Like you might have a, a certain thought process and then Tobias or Peter or whoever else is there is going to yeah. say something as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's, I think also within UPY, because we do it all face to face, every decision is up for debate. If someone's pushing something that everyone else is like, no way, they'll be told. But at the same time, I really believe that we always should have space in our winning collection for a shot that an individual judge loves, even if the other two are pretty, pretty cool on it. Yeah. Because I think it's important that competitions should celebrate, not the pictures that everyone says, yeah, that's good. We want pictures that someone really, really feels passionately about. Cause I think those are the pictures that tend to have the bit to be a staying power. And although UPY now is, is only nine years old in its modern form, it's sort of positioned itself as sort of the top underwater photography competition. It certainly gets the most entries. It's got, you know, incredible images every year. And I think that we've built that reputation actually from the strength of the pictures we've awarded. Obviously yeah. it needs the talent of the photographers to enter them, but I think that our judging process has picked out a lot of pictures that have become incredibly iconic within the underwater photography world, um, including some of yours. Um, and uh, <laughs> it's, I think as a result, you know, the strength of the winners the previous year makes it the competition everyone wants to enter the next year. And I think in a relatively short period of time, we've established ourselves very, very strongly. And I think having this face-to-face -face judging process, having this ability for each judge to have some proper ownership over the collection rather than being one of a big panel of judges, I think has, has created really strong images. So yeah, yeah. But right now, I just want to announce that we get it all done because it's, <laughs> it, it's, it's a lot of work. Yeah, no, I I bet it's it's repetitive and yeah, you've got to try and get there with all 
all the work. But how did it all start for you? I don't think I've ever asked you this actually, but obviously because like people see Alex Mustard, the 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 UK underwater photographer. But where where did it all start for you? I guess a, a little like you, just with a love of the underwater world and particularly a love of fish. I was, you know, incredibly fascinated by fish when I was young. My interest came more from sort of keeping tropical fish in aquariums more than any sort of field experience. Yeah. And by the time I was sort of eight or nine, you know, you could show me any page of any fish ID book and I could tell you what everything was, whether it was <laughs> freshwater or marine, tropical or... Like a sponge at that age, aren't you? Yeah, and and I, I, I imagine I probably had better knowledge then, but I've kept that passion throughout my life. and. It was that that drove me actually to sort of wanting a career involved in that. And initially that led me to being to following a marine biology route. But I think in reality, what I do now is kind of more of what I felt that marine biology would be when I was a kid, which was going out into the field, seeing amazing things and sharing my knowledge and my experiences with a wider audience. And I thought as a kid, maybe that would be as, as a scientist, but as I've grown up, it's it's become being a photographer. But in reality, I, I kind of do the job that I kind of envisaged when I was young, which was which is that, you know, going out there, seeing incredible things, recording them, understanding them and sharing that with people. We get to do all the fun stuff and none of the too bogged down academic stuff, really, being a, a underwater photographer. So it's sort of the best best of it, I think. Yeah, and, and I think that, you know, imagery, whether it's still or, or moving picture imagery, is incredibly important for engaging people. And so, you know, well, you know, people maybe at first glance say, oh, you're an underwater photographer. That sounds like a bit of an easy, easy and not particularly important type of role. I actually <laughs> think that without that, without that imagery, whether it's, you know, moving pictures or still images, I think people would be, um, wouldn't have the connections, wouldn't have that ability to connect with this underwater world that, they they wouldn't see with their own eyes no definitely well look at the blue planet 2 effect like with the whole plastics and oceans like before that you know people were somewhat aware of it but it affected real change so no it's moving image and stills have got a very powerful message for for a lot of people yeah. for sure but i also just enjoy taking pictures of fish too I mean, I <laughs> it's not all about still... high, and, high and mighty no uh... no it's just, it's a simple pleasure no i can I've, i'm addicted to that myself so i can i can fully appreciate that who, who inspired you getting into it were there any influences when you were starting out well, strangely, a little, but I mean, and, and lots of people along the way, hugely. But I think in those early years, it was incredibly difficult to come across that information. Yeah. And I think people forget about this. I, you know, these days, everything is is there at your fingertips online. And when I was starting out, you know, you'd, you'd have maybe monthly magazines where there'd be occasionally articles on people and maybe you'd find out about that person, but they, you couldn't go and visit their website or their Instagram account. So, you know, you, you know, you, this kind of the magazine particularly was an incredible window into that. And one of the first sort of competitions that I sort of stepped into that bigger world with was that amateur photographer magazine ran a annual competition and included in that a young amateur photographer of the year competition and that was the first competition that you know that was of a high standard that I had success in and I remember at those awards them telling me about oh do you know there's a, a wildlife photographer of the year competition that you could enter and I'm thinking and I just never heard of these things and I didn't know any other underwater photographers the only contact I had in underwater photography was through the um, Ocean Optics, which was a an underwater photography dealer um, back in those days. And that was kind of the only source of information. I didn't know that things like a British Society of Underwater Photographers existed, and I didn't know any other underwater photographers. So it was a, 
it's hard to think you could exist in such a bubble these days because that information is is two clicks away on any device in you know around the house but back then it was actually yeah i kind of did a lot of stuff in isolation positive of that is i think it it meant that i was very much self-taught on everything and have really had to understand underwater photography and underwater photography is a very technical discipline and i think that the re having to be self-taught and having to learn everything myself and having to make every mistake myself has set me up very well for what i kind of spend most of my time doing these days which is is teaching others underwater photography um yeah. and i think yeah. having that really sort of thorough understanding meant that when i started writing articles writing books giving talks about underwater photography i had a very fresh perspective i wasn't simply regurgitating what someone else had told me i was teaching what i'd learned for myself and yeah that's not that a bad thing though, no no not at all i think it's been very valuable yeah no i think that's i remember when i first got into it i was just sort of just handed martin edge's book which is basically the bible for un underwater photographers and like there you go read that and you're pretty much uh pretty much be away which was a very useful book i probably still got it somewhere but yeah no i i do agree with you i think it is good to sort of learn learn things your own way and you come up with your own methods and i think especially photography is a, an art form that is so objectionable so just because everyone else does it one way doesn't mean that's the right way everyone's going to have their own different techniques of of doing things like for me personally i'm quite happy to shoot in murky backscatter filled water on high iso with no flash which i know like a lot of underwater photographers would have a heart attack if they were in those conditions but i i'm, I'm quite happy to do that so i think yeah i agree with you kind of forge your own path and see what works and what doesn't yeah i, I have to say though learning from others is of course the the, the, the uh, more efficient route but yeah. you know because i never had any ambitions to be a photographer no. in anything more than a hobby i was not particularly bothered about my progress you know, I wanted to do marine marine science. You know, I went, went on, did my PhD, worked as a postdoc researcher. But sort of certainly through my teens and early 20s, I had no ambitions to be, you know, a, a good underwater photographer. It was just a, a really enjoyable hobby. And I, you know, I, I mean, I was trying to take nice pictures and I was having competition success. But it wasn't like I had any, I really didn't have any ambitions for this to become a career. So it was kind of, it was it was never very serious, and I think that allowed me to play with ideas photographically, to play ex to experiment and and innovate, and and ultimately that actually probably set me up much better for a a career than if I'd been purely career focused from a very early early start. One thing I'll say about you, Alex, is you're probably one of the most humble nature photographers in the UK because there's a lot of topside photographers who. Uh, I won't name any names, but it doesn't take five minutes before they tell you what they are and what they've done and what they've achieved. Where I've always found with you, you've got to kind of tease out these amazing things that you've done. And you are very humble about these fantastic pictures that you take. And it's a quality I've always admired in you uh, for those sort of things. I think you're. It's probably just don't know me well enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe it could be that as well. Uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I think that, I think that a lot of, it's a difficult world because as a photographer, your product is yourself. And yeah. if you're not advertising, promoting yourself, your business is suffering. Mm. I think the difficulty that photographers have is that if you have to spend all week telling everyone how great you are in order to make your business work, it can be hard to turn that off. And I think that's maybe why quite a lot of photographers end up 
you know, as raving egomaniacs, it's because they've had to spend all their time telling everyone, I'm, you know, I'm I'm the guy you should be using, I'm the girl you should be using. Yeah. Um, it's usually not the female photographers who become the raving egomaniacs. No, no, it's not, no. Um, no. But, you know, I think that, and that is a part of it, and after a while you maybe start believing it. That's a very diplomatic way of putting that. <laughs> uh, are, are there any aspects of the job that you don't like? Because I suppose everyone always says, you must get this all the time where people go, oh, you're so lucky and it's amazing what you do. But are there any aspects that are maybe not so favourable? I don't. I mean, I, I love all my time. Yeah, I, I guess the challenge is balancing it with family life. And yeah. I think, yeah. and I, you know, it's it, it, it sounds like, a you know, very much a sort of, you know, a, a, a luxury problem. But actually, I think it's 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 a real challenge because, you know, when I was starting out, I would have you know leapt at any opportunity to have more time in the field and and have the opportunity to shoot. But once you become settled down, and particularly once you know now I'm a father, um, that really changes your perspective. In that it's every every day you're away from home is a big imposition on your relationships with your family. And in my case, you know, my wife works as well. And if I'm away from home, she has to restrict how many hours she can do in her job because yeah. she needs to be around to to look after our daughter um, in, and, and that sort of thing. So I think that's the part I don't like in that it's a constant battle and that I think as a photographer, you're always looking to maximise your opportunity, maximise your earning, maximise your time in the field. And indeed, when photographers, nature photographers gather together, they often show off about how many days away they've done in each year. And I would say the challenge that I'm trying to address now is maintaining my you know, my outputs, maintaining my income while minimizing my time in the field. Um, and, and obviously, those are conflicting aspects. And I'm you know, trying to minimize it. Profoundly. And I would say that the thing I'm probably most proud of as a photographer in the last five years is being able to earn a good standard of living to provide for my family while shooting the things that I want and maintaining a very good work-life balance in terms of being around for my family um, and also having the field time required to, to do high-quality nature photography. And I, I'm by that, you know, I measure that both in income and having the critical success in terms of having success in major competitions. And I think being able to find that balance without it, you know, and, you know, yes, my wife would be happier if I was home more, but I don't think I'm away an excessive amount of time. Um, and, you know, we do balance. It. And in fact, she has just come back from being in the British Virgin Islands for her job. And I've been manning, manning the, the, the home um, <laughs> the last week on my own. So, so yeah, so, you know, we, we manage a, a good balance, I think, given the unusual nature of my job. It's a juggling act, isn't it? And I, I think it's something that a lot of professionals are maybe reluctant to talk about or they don't want to talk about that. It's maybe a symptom of social media that you only see the positives. People don't necessarily want to let you into the the hardships and things that don't work so well, but it can be tough on, on family, on friends and things like that. And um, yeah, I can, I can sympathise with that. I, I remember, oh God, this must have been about 10 years ago. You came to Falmouth University when I was a student there. And you were giving a talk, and it was a very good talk. And I was sat in the front row. I can't remember if I've told you this story or not, but I was sat in the front row of a friend of mine, and, and we'd been out the night before, and he was just a little bit worse for wear. And you you started talking, and all these amazing pictures were popping up, and we were absorbed by it. And then I turned over, and he had his head slumped on my shoulder, snore, starting to snore. And you you clocked him, but you, you ever the professional, you just carried on. 
and I and I elbowed him as hard as I could without trying to make any noise. He, he woke up and I went, get out. You can't be in the front row snoring uh, when Alex Mustard is here. And he's sort of shuffled off. But I, I, I just think things like that, like I occasionally get people falling asleep um, in my talks, which kind of, it makes me smile a little bit. I'm not too annoyed by it. That's a very minor thing to moan about, but it's just little things like that. Well, I think because I do a lot of, I run a lot of workshops and that's yeah. that's generally how I, I manage a lot of my year and a lot of my travel is by running underwater photography workshop trips and, you know, nature photography is lots of people's hobby. Yeah. And I think underwater photography, particularly the sort of the scuba diving tropical side of it is well suited to workshop trips because underwater photographers don't want to dive like normal divers. And it's very hard <laughs> to go diving somewhere on your own. Whereas if you can get a group of you together and 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 hire a liverboard or hire a takeover a resort, you can run everything to your tune and you can make sure all the diving is ideal for photography, that people are given what they want. So as a result, I, I spend a lot of my travel time going and, and running these workshop trips and teaching. And I've always taken the attitude that despite being well-known in my field, I'll always make sure on every trip, on every day, people get the impression that I'm there purely for them, not for myself. Okay. And I mean, I'll take pictures underwater, which is what we get to do compared to nature photographers on land who often can't shoot next to their clients because we can't talk underwater. We can shoot at least. Yeah. But yeah. the rest of the day, I'm, you know, kind of, you know, I'm a hundred percent focused on, on, on the group. And that means we often have some quite long days and late finishes. So I'm very used to people nodding off after they've done <laughs> three or four dives and we're talking in the evening and we're reviewing their pictures for the day or something in that. And I always joke that I stand up to give the talks, otherwise I'd be falling asleep too. Yeah. It's no problem. And if, if people haven't, if they're not falling asleep, they haven't been trying hard enough during the day. So okay, quite relaxed about people snoring in my talks. That's the main thing then, isn't it? <laughs> I think one of my regulars calls me the anaesthetist. <laughs> <laughs> It's a good skill to have, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, uh, have you have you noticed any changes in underwater photography? I mean, you've you've obviously been doing it a, a while now. Do you think, like, compared to when you started, to what it's like now, has underwater photography changed in any particular ways? Um, I think yeah, I think in lots of ways. Um, like 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 everywhere. I mean, you know, since I started out shooting film cameras, um, there've been huge changes. I think the, the the change to digital was massive for underwater photography for very simple reasons. Um, the first was on film, we were limited to 36 pictures. And if you go on a scuba dive and can only take 36 pictures, it's quite a restriction. You can't obviously change film underwater. Um, also, most underwater photography is done with flash. And you can't see that flash when you take a picture, obviously. And when on film you had no feedback on how your pictures were working until probably after the trip when you got the pictures developed um as soon as we switched over to digital and you had that instant review it allowed you to finesse the quality of your pictures so much by because your main light source suddenly now you could have feedback on and adjust and see and i would say that's been a huge change in underwater photography and then we've had some massive other massive equipment changes over the last decade, particularly since the digital revolution, one of which has been some really big changes in how on um, development of underwater optics that I've been very involved with. Um, others have been real improvement in underwater lighting, particularly our flash photography underwater, just having more widely available, higher quality light. And those things have really transformed things. And, and you know, it's, you know, underwater photography is, is driven kind of by um, a keen sort of non-professional um photography market 
who love the latest toys. So there's there's always been a lot of you know development in if you can as a manufacturer if you can come up with kind of the new gizmo, everyone will buy it. And so it's a it's a valuable that drives a lot of progress in our field, which is really exciting which never existed before. You know, things were very static for a long time and we've had so much innovation and constant innovation. And it's very exciting. We're going to utilize new equipment. And, you know, quite a lot of my successful competition shots have come about because of, you know, being lucky enough to be the person charged with, you know, field testing or developing this stuff and being able to get the shots first with yeah. it. Um, and then, you know, the workshops are driven by teaching people how to use it. So, yeah, I, I, that's been, I think that's had lots of uh, changes on that. I would also say that underwater photography has got a lot more people involved than it used to have. Yeah. I think it's a lot, yeah. lot easier to get into now. And I think with free diving also becoming popular and the cameras, digital cameras having the ability to take pictures underwater without flash um, has also made underwater photography you know, uh, much more widely um, available. And people even with action cameras can create really beautiful stuff. And so it's it's also become a big sort of, you know, it's become much more of a mainstream activity. And it's been really great for engaging people in the underwater world um, because it's it's now easy. I think in the old days it was expensive and hard and people tried it and didn't like it. And I think these days people can try it, like it, and it keeps them hooked and keeps them active and keeps them interactive with the underwater world. It's incredible how um, quickly technology moves on, isn't it? I, I was looking back at some old footage the other day from the very first GoPro. And, I, and at the time, I thought, oh, this is like Blue Planet. This is amazing. And looking at it now, I'm like, God, it looks like Vaseline has been smudged on the lens. It's awful. <laughs> but, you know, it's that perspective then. And, and compared to now, it, it technology does move on so quickly, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, um, underwater photographers have been slower to adopt the latest mirrorless cameras yeah. than, than, than land photographers because a lot of the mirrorless cameras that have been produced in the last three or four years have been inferior underwater cameras um, to the SLRs. And we just sort of, I think this will be the year where the mirrorless cameras clearly become better underwater cameras than the SLR cameras. And I think that's, so that's going to be driving other changes as we're able to sort of harness some of the new technology and new capabilities of those cameras. So it's, it's, yeah, it's always on the go. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because that was actually going to be one of my questions, whether you had a preference, because, yeah, I the only thing stopping me going mirrorless, because I do like mirrorless cameras, is 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 for the underwater side. Is So far, I've not found one that marries both of them. Like there are some mirrorless cameras which are pretty good topside, but they've just not translated to underwater. So you think that we're kind of coming to the precipice, do you, that we're kind of getting <laughs> to that point? I think for you it's it's a bit less of an issue yeah because you don't do as much classic scuba diving photography no um and i think i mean without getting too boringly technical one <laughs> of the classic um scuba diving photos is a photo where you go down on you know onto uh, into you know you're shooting an under wide angle underwater picture you set up a high contrast scene where you have you know silhouetted foreground and a bright background because underwater it's a low contrast environment that sort of high contrast scene will look good in a photo and then you then flash fill that foreground the problem with the mirrorless cameras is that when you look at that scene before you put the flash on it through an electronic viewfinder it's very hard for that electronic viewfinder to be able to show you the detail in that silhouetted foreground and the detail in that bright surface of the ocean background 
um, which is kind of such a, a fundamental underwater photo. And that's been a major frustration with the electronic viewfinders of the mirrorless cameras is they can't show us one of our, our main types of underwater photos properly. Now, the electronic viewfinders are getting better and better with each generation. And actually, I've just come back from um, running trips in the Cayman Islands where I was shooting one of the latest Sony cameras on that trip just borrowed for review on that trip. And that camera was the first one that I've used with a an electronic viewfinder that is really able to, to show that to a degree that I'm happy to shoot with. It's still not quite as nice as an optical viewfinder, but obviously an electronic viewfinder can do so many other things as well that the small loss for that classic shot is worth it for the gains in being able to review my images without taking my eye off the viewfinder, to navigate menus, to do things like focus peaking and and all those things through my main viewfinder. So um, that camera for me was kind of felt really like, and that was the Sony A7R5, the the, the new the newest Sony. And you know the the advance in electronic viewfinders is massive. The the first mirrorless camera I reviewed um, for underwater photography was the um, the Olympus um, OM. Well, it was the M5, the OM, um, the OMD M5, which was one of the very first kind of interchangeable lens, but high quality mirrorless cameras. And we actually Olympus arranged a review for us to to go to Malta and and review those cameras. And that was sort of I think twelve years ago now. And I'm I'm also quite proud that I, I think I was one of the one of the certainly the first underwater photographer, but possibly one of the first photographers to be awarded in the wildlife photographer with a mirrorless shot which was over yeah, 10 years ago now. So everyone's sort of, you know, beating this drum. But, you know, I've not been a, an anti-mirrorless person at any point. But no. the um, the change from that camera with a, a 1 million dot electronic viewfinder to the latest Sony, which I tried, with a 9 million dot electronic viewfinder, I mean, it's a different world. And yeah, it's not just the resolution, but the, the dynamic range that they can now show through those viewfinders is in incredible. And I think that's really changed. So I think this will be the year that underwater photographers begin to leap into that into that world or or certainly there's now no reason to say those mirrorless cameras aren't as good as my slr and you know i think now you, you can begin to say they're better because what's been happening since the last slrs were made is that those mirrorless cameras have been not only improving their electronic viewfinders but their sensors have been getting better their water focus has been getting better and the jump onto them from the um the slrs is 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 quite impressive technologically but nikon certainly have got some serious catching up to do for underwater shooting canon could probably do with a little bit of catching up to get up to where the sony is at the moment but they certainly will because there have been plenty of times over the last 20 years where one or the other has been lagging behind and they've leapfrogged back ahead you know with the next generation yeah and it's always the same with camera companies isn't it so sort of like betting on a horse that the uh, one will come come through. Um, yeah. with, um, obviously, scuba diving is a huge part of your life and photography is a huge part of your life. Um, if you had to choose one, what would it be? Oh, photography, for sure. I mean, really? I I'm surprised at that. Well, no, but I wouldn't take photos on land. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm, you know, you gave me the choice between photography. That's and true. Oh, yeah, that's sneaky, Alex. So, that's no, and because I only take pictures underwater, photography for me means underwater photography. Uh, okay. Okay. So, yeah, I would. You got, me. Um, you got me on a technicality there. <laughs> well, it wasn't there. It wasn't my intention. But yeah, certainly, <laughs> it's. I I like being in the water a great deal. I don't yeah. mind if it's snorkeling or scuba diving. I love taking photos in the ocean, and don't mind what I need to do to do that. But it's the it's the taking of the photos that drives me into the water, not 
No. Not anymore. I um at the end of last year I did my 5000th scuba dive and you know the I, I enjoy scuba diving greatly but it's very much a tool to allow me to take photos if I'm scuba diving to take photos and I'll just as happily, you know, and I'll just as happily, you know, go and lie in a shallow river with you as I will go on a scuba dive. It's, you know, it's the the ability to show to try and create nice pictures of that world that draws me in. Yeah, no, I'm with you with that. Like I um I enjoy diving when I occasionally do it, but it's um yeah, it's just a tool for the job, to be honest. I probably wouldn't dive just for me. I'd only go in with a camera unless it was something amazing, but then I'd want my camera. So yeah, I don't I don't yeah. generally um um, I'm definitely the same on that yeah yeah no that makes sense um have you got any kind of encounters that were etched into your memory for UK or abroad really when you've been I mean I know you that you've literally been all over the world and you've been very lucky to see all kinds of incredible wildlife but is there anything that <clears throat> that stands out yes of course I, I think the way I sort of answer this type of question is I think it's very important as a photographer to be passionate about what you're shooting. And, you know, I've been lucky enough to, you know, photograph, you know, orcas and blue whales and great white sharks and tiger sharks and, and you know, everything that, you know, down to pygmy seahorses or, or, or whatever it is that, you know, live, lives in the ocean. But if whatever I'm choosing to photograph, I will make sure that I am passionate about that. So if my next shoot, next opportunity in the ocean is going snorkeling down at Pendennis Point and I'm only going to photograph seaweeds, I'm going to be as excited about doing that and creating those images as I would be if going out to see a blue whale or going out to swim, you know, with orcas or or sharks or whatever it is. Because I think if you're not, you won't create those powerful images. And I think that passion is very important as a photographer. And, you know, you need to be to be excited about what you're shooting, wanting to tell whoever's going to see the pictures, why you think this subject is amazing. And so I try not to dwell too much on the past because I think it would mean that, you know, if I'm going in in two metres visibility to look for tiny sea slugs, you know, I'll be dreaming about swimming in 30 metre visibility surrounded by 30 metre long blue whales. And yeah. I don't think that would mean that I would take good sea slug pictures. So I try to stay a little bit in the present on that and not dwell too much on the past. I think... My favorite encounters are often driven by, by fa my favorite memories are often driven more by favorite pictures than experiences. Yeah. Although the experiences were something I was trying to pour into my imagery, um, it's the the imagery that remains is it kind of becomes the indelible memory more so than the experience because you know that that was kind of my focus. Um. So there's there's kind of this strange part of being a photographer where you have to be fully immersed in this in the in the encounter so that that passion flows into the imagery but you're also strangely detached because without so you're not going to have the the technical wherewithal particularly in underwater photography to capture the picture properly so you kind of you're you're in it and you're not in it um and i would say that yeah during the trip i i suspect the the passion for the subject flows but in the moment it's quite often the the technical side that maybe comes to the fore yeah i think that's a really interesting way of looking at it like I think as well, you can find the beauty in anything if you look hard enough. And as you say, like, even if it is sea slugs at Pendennis, looking at all the minute detail and the colours and, and things like that, um, you can get those interesting images. So, no, I I, uh, I sympathise with you um, there. So if someone wanted to get into underwater photography as a career, 
what would you advise? I mean, I'm, I'm sure you get asked this all the time, and I know you do bits at lots of camera clubs and and universities. But uh, what would you what would you suggest? I think the first thing I'd say is, you know, if you're really passionate about it, you know, it can work. And certainly when I was starting out and didn't, you know, I mean, and been around for quite a while because it was quite late on that I decided to do it as a career. I was told by pretty much everyone I know that it was impossible. Hmm. And I think that I would encourage people to say that it's not impossible. Um, It's not the route to earning loads and loads of money and I think there's a real challenge to 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 survive long enough to make it work, which I think you'd completely agree with in that if you can survive, you know, you, you get better known, you build up more material, you build up more experience, you build up more contacts, and it tends to work. So the first thing I'd say is it is worth it. It can work out. It can give you an incredible life and incredible opportunities. Um, but it's unlikely to be, it, it's certainly not the way to a quick buck. I think that it's really important to approach the whole thing with a clear business sense. Um, that doesn't mean that you need to know every last thing about running a company, but I, always, you know, the, the 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 catchphrase I always used for people is is that you know the pro in 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 going pro is means that your life has got to be all around profit, and it's not simply about making some money; it's about making profit. And if something is going to cost you lots of money to do, or just because it's going to earn you money doesn't mean it's a good decision. And so I spent a lot of my early years not doing what I wanted to do, but doing what I could do without spending much money so that the small amounts of money I was earning were actually profit rather than than income. And it's why to this day I, you know, run workshop trips in, in places where I'm paid by a travel agent to go somewhere and to teach a group in, you know, in between the dives. They go off diving and then in between dives I'm reviewing their images and, and teaching them stuff because I then have left home. I've got the opportunity to make new images. And when I come back, I'm in profit already. And I think that attitude is, is really what allows it to work. So yeah, just focus your, your workings on profit in terms of the photography side. I think if you're simply doing what other people are doing, then there's no room for you in the market. But if you are able to create images that are different and they don't need to be better than what's out there, but if they're different, there will always be room for you in the market. And I think that that's a really important part of it. And I think it's why what you were saying earlier about, you know, actually, you know, learn from the established wisdom, but be very willing to follow your own antenna, because actually that will hold you in very good stead in terms of developing a career. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I would kind of say that anyone can make money from photography but not everyone can make a living from photography is how I've, is how I've always seen it and and in fact I, I, I did a bit of a rant not too long ago actually about that I routinely get asked how how do you take those pictures like, people want to know exactly how I take them or exactly where I take them and I used to kind of give bits away and now I just get a little bit fed up because obviously it's taken me years to work these things out and I just don't want to kind of just give it away on a silver platter which may, might make me sound a bit like an arsehole but um, at the end of the day, it's how I put food on the table. So I have to be a little bit more careful with that. Yeah, and, and I'm very relaxed that, you know, um, you know, I um have, you know, plenty of images that that, you know, you know, my my images are published all the time in lots of places. Yeah. But I'm yeah. very relaxed in also that, you know, I think a big part of my income comes also from helping others make make images. And yeah. I, I, that's made possible by the quality of my work. 
Um, and so I, I don't have any problem, you know, 20 years ago, the photography world worked very nicely that you could be a photographer and you could just give your pictures to an agent and that would give you the, the money to live on. The world has changed as it has in every business and you need to be adaptable as a photographer. And, and if now the market is very much dominated by the, the need to run tours and trips and you're able to do that because of the quality of your work, then I see that as a perfectly acceptable way of, of earning a living from my photography. Um, and if other things come in the future, because obviously the world is not going to stay the same, um, then I'll happily follow those other areas. I think it's all those op earning opportunities are made possible by the quality of your work and the, you know, the quality of, of, of what you've learned down the years. So um, I think that, yeah, I, I, I see no problem in, in finding the income wherever it needs to be found. No, you've got to be versatile. I wouldn't mind if people offered me money, but they don't. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think be versatile. You have have your fingers in lots of pies. And I mean, like, if you pick about what, what is a, a photographer nowadays, like you've got to be a public speaker and you've got to be a teacher and you've got to be a editor. And, you know, there's there's so many different sides to it. Like, I think the days are perhaps gone now where you can just go off, take pictures and, and that's the end of it. I think you have got to multitask, really, in the profession now. Yeah, and, and 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 develop your skills in those areas. But I think also, yeah. you know, it's I do the areas that suit me pers my personality. Yeah, I yeah. enjoy teaching and helping people, so I've gravitated towards that area. Um, I think other photographers are, you know, particularly good at, at speaking, or they're, you know, they they're very good at you know at selling prints and developing strong relationships with clients or, or whatever. Those are aspects that don't suit me so well. So I do less of that in comparison. And I think, you know, I think you just got to be aware of what the opportunities are and then do the ones that suit you in terms of your personality and what you enjoy doing. Because certainly I went into this job uh, or into this career um, because of my passion for spending time with marine life and, and taking pictures. And I've always made decisions in my career that allow me to do that. I, you know, I've been offered the chance to do this commercial shoot in a swimming pool for this sorts of money. And I'm just like, I just don't want to do that. You know, I, I could do with, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'd rather be going and seeing amazing marine life and going and seeing amazing spectacles, even if it means I earn less. I mean, I didn't choose to be an underwater photographer to go and shoot the stuff someone else wants me to shoot. I'll go and do what I want to shoot, which obviously isn't the commercially the best decision, but <laughs> choosing to be an underwater photographer isn't commercially the best decision i want no. to go and you know so i i don't want to compromise the the you know the main passion for it which is is going and and exploring the underwater world and making those pictures and and hopefully being able to share them with people if they're strong enough you could probably make twice the money doing half half the work in uh, in something else i always always think yeah of. but you could if you went and worked you know as in 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 in, in the city or whatever as yeah. well so yeah, I think yeah. having decided to be an underwater photographer, I want to do the underwater photography that interests me. Is there anything you haven't done yet then? Or is there a subject or a place that you've not? I mean, as you said, you've extensively travelled and you've seen a lot. Um, so I'm going to kill those dogs. I don't know if you can hear them, but those little buggers keep barking. Um, is there anything that you've not done yet um, that you'd quite like to do or you quite fancy doing? Um, Yes, always. I mean, I think that, you know, the the, the great thing about the natural world is it's endlessly fascinating. Yeah. Um, and I'm as excited often going back to places um, as I am going to new places. And there's plenty of places I've been where 
I feel I have, you know, not got close to tapping the full photographic potential from them. And there are plenty of places I've never been, you know, a huge list. And I've never really done that much stuff with a lot of the great whales. I've I've not photographed humpbacks, which are by far the most photographed of the great whales. Mm. I mean, I've, I've photographed them a little bit, but I've not done any sort of dedicated trips for them. So I would say that, yeah, I've got a, a huge list, a huge to-do list. But I'm also, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm still in my 40s. I, I'd hate to feel I'd done it all by the time I was 50. Yeah, so my it's intention a depressing is, thought, isn't it? Yeah, so I'm, I'm very happy that there were big things I've not done. And I've often chosen not to do them because others have done them. And I think you need to pick and choose your projects reasonably carefully. There's no, you know, nobody, no individual needs to have a shot of everything. No. Um, and if you've got specializations or someone else has done something very well or very extensively, there's not really going to be much space in, in the market for you to sell those pictures as well. Um, so um, I think I've, yeah. So I'm, I'm very happy that there's lots of big things I've still got to do. I will slowly tick them off. Um, and hopefully, I mean, you know, there is of course the, the, the negative side of it all that, you know, we, the oceans are under lots of pressure and things are vanishing and things are opportunities are going, but as we explore more, there also are new opportunities being found. People discover, oh, if you go to this place at that time of year, you can see this incredible thing going on. Um, so I would say that the, the to-do list grows faster than the, the extinguished list, even though the oceans are under in, incredible pressure. You make a, a very good point there, actually, that about revisiting old locations. So I always con concentrate on the next new thing. But yeah, if you've not been somewhere in a long time, particularly like with new equipment and new attitudes and new ways of looking at things, you can perhaps uh, pick up new new images. Yeah, and your own photographic sensibilities change as well over time. The types of images I wanted to create you know, five, 10 years ago, very different from the types of images I want to create now. And I'm sure in five years time, they'll be different again. And so even when faced with exactly the same opportunity, and even when getting the most out of it to your own ability, um, actually just that natural, you know, evolution in your own um, photographic goals means that the pictures you take when you revisit somewhere are always going to be slightly different. Yeah, no, I think so. I think so, for sure. Um, before we go, I meant to ask you at the beginning, uh, how's Zena? How's your sausage dog doing? Yeah, she's well. She's 12 this month. Wow. Um, she's doing well. Yeah, yeah, she's still, she's really, yeah, she's really well. She's upstairs. Um, there's not, there's more sun in our, our, our sitting rooms on the middle floor. Um, there's more sun in the sitting room than there is in my office. So uh, she deserts me for the sun. They're sun seekers, aren't they? My two, love yeah. it. Any belly, to, belly to the air, belly to the ceiling, <laughs> on her back. Sun on the belly. She's very happy. Yeah, and you can hear them now. I don't know what the hell's going on. They'll probably go down there, and the place has been ransacked. So I'll, I'll double check on that in a second. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was. I was hoping to meet up for this just to to meet the new one. Um, yeah. No, we'll have to. I'll, I'll come down. You so say you're still in Peterborough, aren't you? So I will. Yes. I'll, we'll have to come down. I'll give the dogs a walk and have another waffle. Well, look, it's been a pleasure having you on, Alex. So thanks, thanks for coming on the pod. Oh, no problem at all. That was Alex Mustard. What a man. Alex is one of the few good eggs in wildlife photography, I would say. Uh, maybe because I'm a cynical, grumpy bastard, but I do think he's a genuinely lovely human being and uh, he's, he's very willing to help those. So power to him. Really interesting to hear what he's got to say. Now, if you want to continue following the podcast, you can follow us on Twitter, at TitBearded, and on Facebook, The Bearded Tits Podcast. Next week, I am talking to Rachel Mulrennan, and Matt Palmer from Wild Fish Conservation. 
and we're going to be talking about the subject of salmon farming and how essentially it's a toxic industry. There's so much about salmon farming that I think the general public are maybe not aware of and because it's a scaly fish they're kind of willing to overlook. So we're going to be talking all about salmon farming and how quite frankly it's a, a terrible industry. This has been the Bearded Tits podcast. I've been your host Jack Perks and I'll see you next Tuesday. Cheers.